Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. While you're being seated, also just wanted to let you know that if you are not a part of small group, uh, yet it's not too late. There are uh, some sign-up forms in the back where you can sign up to get more information about that. So if you don't have a Bible, you'll need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and someone will bring you a Bible. It's okay if you don't have one, you're fine. Just raise your hand and they'll bring you a Bible. Uh, while that's happening, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been entrusted with something that was pretty cool? Uh, something that was maybe awesome? Uh, maybe at work or in your household. I, I remember my senior year of college, I was living with my dad, and my dad traveled a bunch, and so uh, he entrusted me with his car. Uh, it was a 1996 Eagle Talon with a sunroof, and it was sweet. It was cool. It was bumping. It was whatever kids say this day about something that is Gnarly, whatever. I don't know. I don't know what you kids say these days, but but it was great, and I loved driving this car around campus. And when I first got the car, I was so overwhelmed with being entrusted with it that I took very good care of it. I made sure that I went slow over speed bumps. I made sure I parked away from other cars in a parking lot if it was possible. I would wash the car by hand. I would armor all the car inside because it was just such an awesome thing to be entrusted with this car by my father. But as the days went on, this extraordinary thing became more and more ordinary to me. And so it got washed a little less. It got parked a little closer to the entrance, and it got drove a little more crazy. And because it got drove a little more crazy, it ended up getting totaled, all right? That's another story for another time. Uh, it wasn't my fault, but I could have avoided it. I will be honest, I could have avoided it. But, but this extraordinary thing became kind of ordinary to me, even though it was still entrusted to me. Uh, in today's passion, uh, passage, Christians are reminded that we have been entrusted with something special, something glorious, something that has transformed the world. We have been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I remember when I first came to faith in Christ, how much I cherished that gospel that I was entrusted with. I love to share with anyone and everyone who would listen, even sometimes obnoxiously. And I love to think about it, dream about it, read about the gospel. But sadly, as time passes, to me, and I think to many Christians, this extraordinary gospel that we have been entrusted with becomes somewhat ordinary. Our zeal for the gospel, our joy in the gospel, our celebration of the gospel becomes flat. Maybe you can resonate. Maybe you're here and you remember a time where you're so in love with Christ and yet it just becomes another addition 
to your life at this point in time. Or maybe you're here today and you have never known the beauty of the gospel and the power of the gospel and the joy of the gospel and church and Christianity are simply a boring exercise of conformity. My friends, if either of these describe you, this passage is for us today to remind us of the joy of the gospel and the, the, the privileges of the gospel that have been entrusted to us by God himself. So if you would, please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We will be looking at verses 11 through 20 today. It is page 991 if you are in the Red Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11 uh, through 20 is what we'll be, be looking at today. Again, 1 Timothy is written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy to share with him the blueprints for the local church. Last week, we studied God's desire uh, that the church would use the law lawfully and not unlawfully, right? And so that we would not use the law as a means of, of attaining righteousness and acceptance before God, but that we would use the law as a gift of God's love to us, that we would use it as a harness to help restrain the wickedness of the world, for the good of humanity, that we'd use the law as a mirror that reveals our sin and drives us to Jesus, and that we would use the law as a light to show how we are to follow Jesus in a way that is faithful to him and best for us. And so last week, Paul shows us how to love God's law. This week, Paul shows us how to love God's gospel of grace. So let's look, verse 11, and we will read through verse 15. We'll cover through verse 20, but we got a lot to cover today. So let's just start with 1 Timothy 1, verse 11 through 15. This is God's word. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. Let's pray. Lord God, some of us here today do not know the glory and the power and the joy of the gospel. Some of us have grown bored of the gospel, and yet others here are overjoyed with the gospel. No matter which of these we are in right now, God, we pray that more of your gospel grace would overflow on us today, that we might overflow with your gospel grace to those around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Before we dig in, I want to focus a little bit on verse 11 because even though it's a transition verse, I think it really sets us up for the passage we're gonna be looking at today. And so look at verse 11 with me again. It says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This term gospel literally means good news and it was often used to proclaim the birth of a new king. Later, we will get to a concentrated definition and explanation of this gospel. But for now, notice who this gospel belongs to. It said, Paul says, it is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. This gospel, this good news, primarily belongs 
to God. Not to me, not to you, not even to the church, but primarily it belongs to God. And it belongs to our Trinitarian God. You see, the God, God our Father, is the author of this gospel. God the Son is the accomplisher of this gospel. And God the Spirit is the applier of this gospel. Again, God the Father is the author of this gospel in that he creates it, this magnificent plan for our salvation. God the Son is the accomplisher of the gospel in that he sacrificially carries out the plan of the Father to secure our salvation. And God the Spirit applies the gospel in that he administers the work of the Son to us for our salvation. Christians are joyful benefiters of the gospel but this gospel belongs to our Trinitarian God. And Paul says here in verse 11 that this gospel is an expression of the glory of God, meaning it shows the beauty and the weightiness and the majesty of God. And so if you want to know how good God is, just look into the gospel. And then verse 11 again, he says, In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The gospel belongs to God but it has been entrusted to the church. It has been entrusted to Christians. Not all in the same way as we'll see the Apostle Paul was entrusted it in different ways than you and I are and even other apostles were. Yet all of us have been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the question for us is, how are we stewarding this sacred gospel? How are we to steward this sacred gospel that has been entrusted to us? Are we to put it on a shelf? Are we to bury it in the ground or put it under a bushel? In today's passage, there are three ways we see God calling us to steward this gospel that he has entrusted to us. And as we study this passage, I think it's important to note at the beginning that we are not called to do these things that we will find out about sequentially, like one after the next, but we are to do them simultaneously all at the same time. So the first thing we see here is that we have been entrusted with the gospel to share the gospel thankfully. Look at verse 11 with me again, and we'll go through verse 12. He says, in, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted, I thank him I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Again, if you're familiar with the Bible, you probably know that the apostle Peter was entrusted with the gospel to the Jews. But the apostle Paul was entrusted with the gospel to the Gentiles, meaning to non-Jewish people. Now for Paul to share that gospel was not easy. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul is contrasting himself with false apostles. And as we look at it here, it may look like he's bragging at first, but he's actually trying to defend his apostleship in order to defend the gospel. But we get a picture of what it looked like for Paul to go and share the gospel. So in 2 Corinthians 11, it says this. It says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. 40 lashes would kill a man, so it was one less than what would kill a man, and he received that five times. Could you imagine how scarred up his back was? Verse 25 continues, it says, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned and literally left for dead outside the city. 
Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardships, through many a sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. As you read through this list, you think to yourself, who in their right mind would go through all of this simply to share a message? And yet in verse 12, Paul says he is thankful. He is thankful that he has been empowered by Christ to go and proclaim this good news to people who tried to kill him. The only logical explanation I could give to Paul's gratitude to Christ for giving him the strength to suffer in sharing the gospel is that either Paul was completely out of his mind or that the gospel message is just that good. That the gospel is better than comfort, that it's better than ease, and that it's better even than life itself. You know, the martyrdom of the 11 apostles and Christians throughout the history of the world would attest that Paul was not crazy, but that the gospel really is that precious, that it's even worth giving our very life to share it. I know some of you here are runners. Uh, The best I ever did was a half marathon, and I thought, I'm going to die. Like, it was... It's a lot to run that far. Um, I don't really have a runner's physique, if you can't tell. But, but, um, but you may know this, or may not, but, but where this t- term marathon came from. The, the first marathon race, the official one, was in the late 1800s. And they got its name from a uh, Greek uh, historical story that may be a legend, not sure. But it's about a soldier named Pheidippides. And according to legend, in 40, 490 BC, the Persians were coming to attack the Greeks, uh, in hopes of conquering them and maybe enslaving them or even killing them. And in an effort to defend themselves, the Athenians went out to meet them in the region of Marathon, where it gets its name. And as it became apparent that they were conquering the Persians, one of those men, Pheidippides, ran nonstop to 25 miles from the battlefield near Marathon, Greece, all the way to Athens. And along the way, he stripped off his armor and even his clothing so that he could run faster to tell them the good news. And as he got to the city, as people anxiously awaited to hear how the battle had gone, wondering if they had been enslaved and conquered and if they were maybe even going to die, he runs up to the city and he proclaims, Nike, which was not a shoe at the time. It meant victory, and then he died. You see, Pheidippides did not defeat the Persians, but he was entrusted with this message of victory. This was a gospel message that he was going to share. Good news, we have been saved. And he was so overjoyed to share it with others that he was willing to suffer great pain and even great loss of his life to joyfully proclaim the good news of their salvation. What the Apostle Paul was convinced of is that he has been entrusted with better news than Pheidippides. For the gospel of God is the good news that Jesus has come to save men, women, and children, not from the Persians, but from Satan, sin, death, and eternal hell. This gospel is the good news of the victory of God on our behalf, displayed through the cross and the empty tomb. And just as Paul was entrusted with the gospel to share it with Gentiles, you too, Christian, have been entrusted with the gospel to share it with those whom God has put in your life, to share the good news of the gospel with coworkers, with classmates, 
with teammates, with family members, with neighbors. And it might cost you your friendship, your reputation, your job. It may even cost you your life. But it is so good that we come to share it in suffering with gratitude, that we get to be used by God to bring the good news of salvation to those who do not know it. And so how do we spur our joy in the gospel? How do we faithfully steward the gospel of God that has been entrusted to us? Will we sacrificially, generously, and thankfully share the gospel good news that we have been entrusted with and that we have been empowered to share by Christ himself? And so that's the first way. The first way we're to steward this gospel we are entrusted with. The second way we're to steward the gospel that we are entrusted with, it's to celebrate the gospel personally. Let's look at verse 12 again through verse 13. It says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent or violent opponent. Paul writes 1 Timothy about 25 to 30 years after his conversion. And as Paul looks back, he is still astounded at what a bad guy he was. He was astounded at how much he hated Jesus and how much he hated followers of Jesus. In Acts chapter 26, Paul tells us that before he encountered Christ, he was convinced that he ought to do many things to oppose the name of Jesus. And so in Jerusalem, he locked up many followers of Christ and he cast votes with the chief priests to put Christians to death. Paul hated Jesus so much that Paul actually took his show on the road. He went to foreign territories to make them blaspheme, to make them recant Jesus as Christ. And in raging fury against them, he says, I persecuted them. I think it's fair to say, what, while some may have hated Jesus as much as Paul, I don't think anyone hated Jesus more than Paul. A modern day example, maybe to help us understand just what kind of man he was, would be Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea. I think we're aware of a lot of the atrocities going on there, but did you know that in North Korea, if you are a Christian and you are discovered by authorities, that they will torture you, that they will send you to labor camps with horrendous conditions, or they will simply kill you on the spot. Not only that, but they will do the same to your family, even if they don't claim to be Christians. And not only that, but everyone in the country is a mandatory reporter of Christians. And so if someone finds out you're a Christian and they don't report it to the authorities and they are found out to not have reported you to the authorities, they can be put to death as well. Kim Jong-un is doing his best to eradicate Christianity from North Korea and the Apostle Paul was doing the exact same thing in Israel 2,000 years ago. Paul was the last person you would think who would become a Christian and probably the least worthy person to become a Christian. And yet in verse 13, he says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor and insolent, but I received mercy. Now, what is mercy? Well, in order to understand and to believe in mercy, we first have to understand and believe in justice. And so what is justice? Justice is, is simply defined as getting what you deserve. On Friday, an alert popped up on my phone and there was a man uh, who was sentenced to life in prison without any chance of parole because he took the life of a 21-year-old University of Wisconsin student. 
In his statement, he not only apologized to everyone, but he says, I'm accepting the punishment that I've got coming. This man knows that he deserves life in prison, if not the death penalty, and justice is what was given to him. This is what he deserves. No one, not even this guy, would argue that he deserves life in prison. He knows he deserves it. And so justice is getting what you deserve. And so with this understanding of justice in mind, what is mercy? Well, justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And so in this story of the man, for him to receive mercy would be for him to receive no jail time at all, to be set free. You know, such mercy would be scandalous. The judge would probably be fired. It would probably make national news. Paul was tormenting and murdering, yes, murdering God's kids. He was murdering God's kids. And for this, Paul deserved death and eternal punishment. That's what justice demanded, and Paul knew it. That's what he deserved. But God the Father of those whom Paul had killed extends mercy, not smiting Paul as he deserved, but as verse 13 says, I received mercy. He says, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, by saying that, he is not excusing his wickedness in any way, shape, or form. What he is doing is he is setting us up for verses later in this passage of other people who blaspheme, but they had blasphemed as members of the church, not as those outside of the church. And so he is making a, a, distinguish, a, a distinction uh, that we'll get to in a little bit. Verse 14 continues, and he says, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me, literally, it superabounded. It was exceedingly abundant with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And so here, Paul is continuing in language of judicial term, talking about the overflowing grace of the Lord given to him. And so, if justice is getting what you deserve, and mercy is not getting what you deserve, grace is getting what you don't deserve. Again, using that former illustration, if this man convicted of Murder was released from prison and received this scandalous mercy. Grace goes even further. Grace would be if the parents of the woman whom he killed not only forgave him and let him go from prison, but if they welcomed him into their home, if they adopted him, loved him, and shared their wealth with him. Again, this would be scandalous mercy and amazing grace that would make headline news throughout the world. And yet this is the grace and mercy that God has shown to Paul in Christ. And he knows it. He was a marked man destined for an eternity of weeping and gnashing of teeth because that's what justice demands. But God had mercy on Paul and overflowed onto Paul his amazing grace. And now here Paul shares a concentrated form of the good news of the gospel of grace that we have been alluding to this entire time. Look at verse 15 with me. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In other words, pay attention. This is the most important thing. Pay attention. This is what you need to put all your weight on. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. You see, when one shows mercy to another, it is costly to show mercy. The mercy giver must absorb the debt of the mercy receiver. You know, if I loan you my car and you total my car, justice would demand that you repay me for my car. Mercy would say, 
You don't have to repay me. I will absorb the debt of that wreckage. The mercy giver must absorb the debt of the mercy receiver. And again, to take it one step further, if I decide to show you grace and give you your own new car, that would come at my expense as well. In order for God to show Paul mercy and to show you and me mercy, God had to absorb the debt of our sin, which is death and hell. God the Father authored this plan of absorption by sending his one and only beloved son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live the life we should have lived and then to absorb our sin and pay our death upon the cross on our behalf. You see, Bounty, the quicker picker-upper, has nothing on Jesus. A paper towel can absorb a glass of grape juice that has been spilled. But Jesus can absorb all of your sin and the sins of everyone in the entire world who trusts in him for their salvation. And he can put it up on the cross and pay for it in full so that we can now receive the scandalous mercy and amazing grace of God. Jesus was a marked man, marked by our sin, because he absorbed our sin, he absorbed our debt and paid the hell it deserves upon the cross. Friends, did you notice here in verse 15, Jesus did not come to save good people. Jesus did not come here to save okay people. Jesus came to save sinners. And Paul says the saying is trustworthy and true and deserving of full acceptance that he came to save sinners, of which Paul considers him the foremost or the prototype, the worst of sinners. And yet we know throughout history, Paul has had stiff competition of being the worst of sinners. John Newton was a sailor in the 19th century who had a reputation for profanity, for coarseness, and debauchery, which even shocked the other sailors. He had this nickname. Get this. This was John Newton's nickname. His nickname was the Great Blasphemer. How would you like that for a nickname? His nickname was the Great Blasphemer because he would talk people out of Christianity. But on March 21st, 1748, his boat was overwhelmed with storms in the North Atlantic. And thinking he was going to meet his maker, he cried out to God. And as he looks back on that day, he says, On that day the Lord sent from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. On that day, God not only saved John Newton from physical death, but from eternal death. And he was born again. Eventually, he left the slave trade and became a preacher, where he proclaimed God's gospel of overflowing grace for 43 years. And during that time, he penned the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. John Newton went on and lived to be 82 years old and was active in ministry. And as his health was fading in the final two years of his life, he said this to his friends. He said this. I think it's on the screen. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Friends, little sinners have little gospels and little saviors, but big sinners have a big gospel and a big Savior. You know, maybe you lived a pretty sanitary life before you became a Christian. You were, you were always patted on the back. You were said, you are such a good kid. If that's you, I have good news for you. You are a much bigger sinner than you know. You are a great sinner. Maybe you didn't do drugs or go to prison, but you are a great sinner. 
And the good news for big sinners is that we have a much bigger Savior. You see, whether you are headed to prison or headed to Princeton, you need a big Savior because you are a big sinner. If you are not flabbergasted by the gospel, if you are more fixated on what God has not given you in worldly comforts than what God has given you in the gospel, it is because you have forgotten how big a sinner you are and how great a Savior Jesus is. But when we grasp this, as Paul does here, it will lead us to celebrate the good news of the gospel personally and point to the hope of the gospel for those around us. And that's exactly what we see here in this passage as it continues. Verse 16, he says, but I received mercy. Literally in the Greek, it is, I have been mercied. And so Christian, the sovereign God of the universe has mercied you. That's what he's saying. I have been mercied for this reason, that in me as a foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Fellow Christians, we are walking, talking billboards of God's scandalous mercy and amazing grace that he would make such big sinners like you and me the objects of his patience to not smite us, but to patiently call us to himself and to save, him to, save us to himself. What amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. All of this Gospel mercy and gospel grace is so overwhelming for Paul as he thinks about it and meditates on it that it erupts into a volcano of celebration, into a doxology, which is giving glory to God. And he says in verse 17, to the king of the ages, the ruler of all times, immortal, never going to die, invisible, beyond sight, the only God, not once among many, but the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever Amen. I want to try something that's a little bit unorthodox, something we don't do here much at Jacobswell Church, or not at least in a sermon. And don't get too excited. We still have a main point to go, so it's not over. But, but I want to try a reverse call and response in a way, okay? And so here's what I want to do. On the count of three, if you believe this to be true, I want you to say, I am a big sinner, okay? And we're going to do it three times. I know. Welcome to Jacobswell Church. This is like the worst place on earth, right? But here's what we're going to do, okay? On the count of three, I want you to say I'm a big sinner, okay? One, two, three. You have a bigger Savior! One, two, three. You have a bigger Savior! One, two, three. You have a bigger Savior. Praise be to God, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Can we thank God together for the gospel of Jesus Christ? <laughs> Friends, you have not only been entrusted with the gospel to thankfully share the gospel with the others, you have been entrusted with the gospel to marvel and enjoy and celebrate the gospel personally, deep down in your bones. Finally, we have been entrusted with God's gospel to guard the gospel militantly. Now, I know as you hear that, you might think to yourself, oh, no, is this one of those churches? To which I say, maybe. Depends what you mean by that. But if by militantly defend or guard the gospel, you mean someone who is going to defend the gospel against false teaching, I hope we are that kind of church. And we see this here in verse 18. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, 
my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. That is military language. But look and see where the warfare begins. And this is very, very, very important. That you made the good warfare, holding faith, that is believing the gospel, and a good conscience, living out the gospel. Paul knows that our faith is fragile. Not our salvation, not our Savior, but our faith is fragile. It is here today and there tomorrow. Therefore, our battle for the gospel does not start out there. Our battle for the gospel starts in here. Let me prove this to you, that the battle for the gospel, Paul's addressing false teachers, but he's saying the battle for the gospel starts in our hearts. Let me prove this to you. Flip one page over to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. Look there with me, 1 Timothy 6, verse 11. I'm gonna take you to one other verse after that. 1 Timothy 6, verse 11. Again, remember, the whole point of the book is writing against false teachers, but look where he says the battle begins. He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfast, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Be militant. Not mean, but be militant. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Here Paul is saying, Timothy, fight the good fight first in your own soul. Flip another page or two to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. The theme and the purpose of the book is very much the same. 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. This is Paul near the end of his life, and this is what he says. Military language. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Christian, your battle for gospel sharing and gospel celebration, for gospel faith and gospel practice does not start out there. It starts in here every single morning you wake up. Back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19. He shows what happens when people don't engage in this battle for their own souls. He says, by rejecting this, that is the battle for the gospel of faith and practice, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Uh, Alexander is mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, and it says of him that he strongly opposed our message. That is the message of the gospel. Hymenaeus is mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and it says he is upsetting the church and poisoning the church like gangrene because he has swerved from the truth and saying that the resurrection has already happened. In other words, he's saying there is no new heavens and no earth. Christ is not returning. Both of these are blasphemous and out of line with the truth of the gospel. And so Paul says here, again, among whom, verse 20, are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. You see, in this world, the primary place of God's special, caring, gospel presence is in the church. This is his people. But the world out there is called the kingdom of Satan. And what Paul is saying here is that after he has warned these men on several occasions, their refusal to repent and believe in the true gospel, he has kicked them out of the church, out of their fellowship, and says, I have turned you over to Satan. Now, this may seem unloving to Paul, but see how this statement ends. See how Paul concludes it. I've handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. His hope is that by turning them over to Satan, putting them out in the world, separating them from the church, that he will discover the miseries of being apart from Christ's church and repent and return to Christ. This is the final step of church discipline. 
when the church has to put someone outside the church, hand them over to Satan with the prayer that they would know their misery, repent, and return to Christ. We see the same thing happening in the church of Corinth, not over false teaching, but false living. First Corinthians chapter 5, it says this. It says, it's actually reported that there is sexually immoral among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? So in other words, what's going on here is they're not disciplining this man. They think it is so gracious and loving to just keep this man amongst their congregation, to allow him to continue in his unrepentant sin. They think that's what's loving, and so they're so arrogant about their own, quote, love. But Paul says, shouldn't you be mourning this? And he continues, and he says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And then here's the reason, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Since the time of the Reformation, theologians have recognized three scriptural principles that are marks of a true church. One of those marks is that the church would rightfully preach the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second mark of the church is that that church would rightfully administer the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism. And the third mark of the church is that it would rightfully administer church discipline. The blueprints for God's church is that the church would defend God's glorious gospel because the glorious gospel is worth it. And if anything in the whole world is worth defending, it is the gospel. And because we seek to defend the gospel, we are called to protect the gospel and to discipline. You know, one of the things I hate most about being a father, I think most fathers would agree, is I hate disciplining my children. As a matter of fact, if you love disciplining your children, there's probably something wrong with you, okay? But I hate, I hate, I hate putting them in time out I hate taking away friend time. I hate taking away electronic time. I hate to see them in pain. But this is what a loving father does. He disciplines his children because he wants the greater good in the end. He forgoes the temporary comfort in order to gain the future godliness. This is what God calls his church to do. And while you here probably see very publicly us teaching the word, proclaiming the gospel, administering the sacraments, what you do not see it's a discipline that is happening behind the scenes. And let me just tell you that your elders seek to be faithful in this, not joyfully, but with tears and weeping, hoping that folks would come back to Christ, both in what they are believing, but also in what they are doing. There are times that we do indeed have to put people outside the church, hand them over to Satan, and we do it for the purity of the church, the witness of the gospel, but also a love for the unrepentant sinner. You see, we do not do this to big sinners. We only do this to unrepentant sinners who have failed to repent and turn back to Christ and the gospel of God. Let me end with reading an article. Um, I'll tell you where it came from later. But, but September 29th, 1949, was forever etched in George's memory. George is, if there's a picture up here, do we have a picture, Wendy, or no? He's the guy on the far right, okay? September 29th, 1949, that was the day his mom came home from the hospital and told him that his dad had died a heart attack. 
he would never see his father again. George ran up to the upper paddock of the farm where his dad had just planted 100 cherry trees and screamed at God, you've got no right to take my dad. I need him, and now he won't be here for Christmas. And because of that, I hate you with all my heart. I hate you, and I will never love you. The anger he felt at that moment swallowed his heart and enslaved his mind. It drove everything he did, every waking moment. At the age of 17, George became the leader of a violent gang in Australia. And he said all that he ever thought about was hurting other people. Well, in early 1959, when George heard that Billy Graham was coming to Melbourne Cricket Ground, he saw an opportunity for vengeance. George said, we hated Christianity, and Billy Graham stood for everything we detested. He said, why would they believe, why would they believe lies about a loving God? Contempt consumed him. George confessed, he said, when we went to the Crusades, we went there with an aim to kill Billy Graham. While there, George Palmer's heart was running away inside his chest. Every word out of Billy Graham's mouth was like a drop of fuel on a fire that was a raging soul. He and his gang members had positioned themselves on the grass in front of the stage, planning to shoot Billy Graham during his appeal. He had made 10 guns, and each member of his gang had a gun, and at his signal, they would rush the stage, and they would shoot and kill Billy Graham. But during the preaching, deep inside, something broke wide open. Tears gushed from his eyes and poured down his face until he could barely see. All night long, scenes from his life played in his mind. When Billy Graham gave the invitation, instead of signaling his guys to shoot Billy Graham, George ran forward to ask for the forgiveness of his sins. And it was not only George, but get this, Nine of the 10 gang members gave their lives to Christ that night. It was amazing, George says. The next day, George felt God leading him to go and apologize to a rival gang leader. The second day, he felt God calling him to become a Salvation Army officer. And so on a Sunday morning, George rode his bike to the Salvation Army Church, and an old man he knew from years earlier came to the front door, and he said to George, he goes, I have been praying for you. And as they wrapped their arms around one another, they sobbed together. God had radically changed George by his gospel of grace. George was commissioned. I think we have another picture here of him. George was commissioned as a Salvation Army officer in 1967 and served in the Salvation Army until his retirement just a few years ago. And he spent that time proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, we were able to see many people come to the Lord in our ministry. And I can see God working in my life right from when my father died. God worked through all of that hatred and won me over. I give him all the glory. Even now, 50 years later, after his conversion, George is still amazed by God's grace. Let me ask you, Christian, are you still amazed by God's grace towards you? You are a big sinner, but you have an even bigger Savior, and he has entrusted us with the gospel of overflowing grace to thankfully share it with those he has put around us, to celebrate the gospel of grace personally and how he has redeemed us, but also to guard this gospel 
militantly that no one would distort how good the good news of the gospel is. Let's pray. Lord, we come today so thankful, so thankful that the glory of your salvation does not depend on our recognition of how glorious it is, that that you have saved us to yourselves. God, let us never forget how great the disparity is between our sinfulness and your holiness. Let us never forget how big of a Savior Jesus is. Help us always to glory in the gospel, to never get past the gospel, that that our pilgrimage would, would end and would circle around the cross of Christ and that we would rejoice in our salvation as those who have been recipients of scandalous mercy and amazing grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.